The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. When we talk about monuments that are elevated and up and what we look up to, we have to think about what is the system that is dependent on us continuing to look up to that statue. There are viewpoints that are dependent on Native American erasure, and that's problematic. Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. Over the past year, as we've seen news stories about cities tearing down Confederate statues or communities ditching the names Thomas Jefferson and Woodrow Wilson for schools, it's clear our nation is having a reckoning with monuments. Who deserves to get a statue and who gets to tell the stories behind these monuments? Today on the Confluence Story Gathering podcast, we dive right into this cultural dialogue to ask, how do we memorialize our history today? This discussion was part of a Confluence virtual panel held in April 2021 in partnership with Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. It was one of a series of events related to the college's exhibition of archival materials from Confluence projects by Maya Lin along the Columbia River. Our panelists are Bobby Connor, an enrolled member of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation and director of the Tumustalict Cultural Institute. Dina Dart is coastal Chumash and Mestiza and descends from the indigenous peoples of California. She's worked as a curator at several museums. And Emily Washines is an enrolled member of the Yakima Nation and board member for the Museum of Culture and the Environment. Our moderator is Matt Reynolds, professor of art history and visual cultural studies at Whitman College. He began the discussion describing one of the Confluence Project sites designed by Maya Lin. I wanted to just briefly share an experience that I had with a friend when when we went to visit one of the Confluence sites at Sacagawea. And, and I've taken students there in the past. And it's always an interesting experience because I think everybody's expecting something spectacular. This kind of great artwork that rises up out of the earth somehow or something or that, that calls attention to itself and screams, you know, I am a great work of art and just look at me, don't look at anything else around me. And what I find most poignant about the Confluence Project is that it resists that kind of looking. It, it asks viewers to work harder and it also calls attention to the landscapes around it, and it asks you to move around and to to look around and to experience those sites as whole environments. So that you do when you go to Sacagawea, you not only see the story circles, you also see the barges coming up the Columbia River, and you you also see the the remnants of the industrialization of of the river and and the impacts of industrialization on, on this environment over the past two hundred years and. I just find that very unique and also special and also part of, I think, the problem sometimes when I try to explain or talk about confluence, they're like, what, you know, like are my mostly white friends and, you know, they, they expect to see the thing that you would see in a museum. Um, I just wanted to share that, but I also, I, I wanted to raise the issue of, of Celilo too. And, and I think this is, 
an important moment for the Confluence Project and in the exhibition that we have in the Maxi Museum, there's an installation devoted to Celilo and devoted to the history of the falls, the inundation of the falls, the loss of that of that space, and 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 all of the rituals and customs that that go alongside that, and that that now that last proposed installation of the Confluence Project has been paused. I wonder what the three of you might think about that too and and where you're at in terms of that. Should it go forward? Should it be moved somewhere else? Should it be recontextualized? Should it, should that site just be left alone? I think all of those uh, positions are are, are incredibly valuable in and of themselves, but I, but I just wonder what the three of you might think. So we've already got an altered landscape. So the army Corps of engineers has reshaped the Columbia river. It is not a living river. It's a series of reservoirs behind dams. So when we talk about (laughs) what's the built environment and what the monuments, we've already got some monuments on the Columbia River. They're called John Day, the Dalles, Bonneville. (laughs) They're not the kind of monuments we want. They're monuments to the modern way we live and the electricity that powers my laptop and powers some people's cars now. But when you mentioned engagement with an experiential interaction with the landscape that is provoked by the bird blind, by the fish cleaning table, by the bridge, all of the story circles. The idea is to get people to relate to sense of place. And so each of those stories is a very different story because of the resources that are there. And we wouldn't call them resources, the gifts that are there from nature, from creation. Before they were commodities, they were the natural order of the world. And so we want, and Maya wants, people to engage that creation. So the bird blind gives you an opportunity. The fish cleaning table is a different opportunity. The bridge is a different opportunity to engage the landscape. And when you come here, We pay heed to place before we pay heed to people because this is the place of, this is the cradle of our existence. This is the place that has nurtured and sustained us for thousands of years. And so we appreciate that point of view and the idea that you could leave it alone and that would be enough is interesting, but since it's already an altered landscape, the question is, how do we remind people of what it might have been like before? Requires some alteration to get native plant species reintroduced to that land, for example. So I would say to you, so much is already so altered that something has to be done to invoke what we hope to remind people of, I think. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you're really stirring it up, Matt. No, (laughs) Uh, I mean, I want to build some context around this. I think Roberta did a good job building some of it. When I think of the time and place that we're at right now, which is we're in a pandemic, and I think and compare that to the last pandemic that we were in, we were in fishing cases in both pandemics. Meaning when people talk about the fish wars, when we look at this monument that's going up, um, you know, about Billy Frank Jr. 
who actually testified in a court Yakima court case, David So Happy, uh, Senior, Junior, uh, Wilbur Slockish, uh, and uh, Matt McConville, and uh, others. When has there been a point in time where we've been able to be at ease with getting our traditional foods to our plate? with maintaining that connection with those natural resources. So when you come to somebody and say, I wanna honor that connection you have, I want to recognize that, I wanna let others know, but we have court cases, we have people taking Fisher's boats away, we have uh, people blocking access or trying to charge them for parking to go fish, to, that's directly impacting their ability to get that fish on their plate. There's elements of fight or flight that are coming into place. There's elements of I'm trying to survive here and you're trying to honor me, honor me by letting me get our fish and continue our traditions, which you needed actually a federal act for in the 1970s to be able to uh, not criminalize natives for talking their language. My father was abused in public school down the road for speaking Yakima language. Do you think that impacted my ability to speak the language and him wanting to teach me? Definitely. We haven't gone a generation where this hasn't been impacted. You know, the last fishing case with our uh, tribal fisher that was in the federal court system, he was a Yakima elder. The federal government wanted him to, at 70s, work in a full-time job while in probation. And if you think about that now and in COVID times and what that would mean, and they wanted to remove his ability to fish and be a part of that. It's, it's unfortunate. It's hard, hard to think about these topics. It is hard to think about sometimes our river people trying to be honored when they're continuing to fight. When we think about the justice system and that's going on in this country right now, we've had fishers that died on the river running from people that were chasing them that were an authority figure. And that still hasn't been addressed and rectified. Their children were taken away from their families after that. I mean, it was, they were trying to be removed from their our fishing villages sites called in loose sites. So there's ongoing systems of oppression. There's ongoing systems of erasure that impact daily lives of our river people that makes it very hard to be honored. <laughs> they just, we just want to eat sometimes. It's very simple. So when we talk about these, you know, very great, awesome projects, I have to remember to talk and connect with community and remember and think about what's going on and what's happening. And am I showing up? Am I in that courtroom where that Fisher needs me to be as he's walking in a cane to sit in a defendant's chair where I just saw a murderer sit two weeks before that? And the sad part about it is there's not a lot of people that show up. So when we talk about these ongoing efforts and these things, we have to think about these other systems that exist that are dependent on native erasure. When we talk about monuments that are elevated and up and what we look up to, we have to think about what is the system that is dependent on us continuing to look up to that statue. There are viewpoints that are dependent on native American erasure and that's problematic. Dina, do you want to weigh in? <laughs> wow. Um, I was thinking about all of, you know, my family members that used to, to sit in front of the bulldozers to keep developers from blowing through one of our cemeteries. And it's so true that these 
these things that we talk about in academic or in um, sort of professional circles are are pretty far removed from the fights on the ground. You know, I I really appreciate. Uh, your words, Emily, because it really did just take it back right back to what, what really matters for our people on the ground. And, um, you know, the truth is we can't even afford to live in those places. My family's from Montecito and we, I, I can't even afford to park in Montecito. You know what I mean? Like it, it, the exclusivity, the way that we've been pushed out of our homelands and then this this narrative is entrenched and in place in order for the property values to continue to thrive, you know, in those places and to folks other than the indigenous population to have control of those homelands and those resources. It's a real issue and it's real, it's immediate. The monuments coming down is, it's symbolic. It's what we can talk about in these circles without sobbing <laughs> um, because they're symbolic rather than the um, they they sim symbolize the suffering of the people, but it, and it's also true. I, I just want to speak to the you know the the way that things get stirred up. You know, in any um, any of these conversations where Native people are talking about trying to heal genocide, right, trying to come back from genocide and the you know the the destruction of our our homelands and the um, erasure of our ancestors and our histories and making it almost impossible to connect to our ancestors, our histories and our cultures. When we have these conversations and that stuff gets stirred up, we are literally re-traumatized. These museums, these monuments, encountering them regularly re-traumatizes us, you know, seeing those green bells all along Highway 101 or Indian children that, that come and do a field trip to the mission only to be, you know, re-traumatized by the erasure of our history. These are, these are real and immediate. I, I think one of the things that Emily is, reminds me of is that, so when we talk about systemic and structural and institutional racism. There's another example. So this is oxymoronic, but there is an acceptable level of toxicity in the Columbia River. I don't know. <laughs> That's just unfathomable to me. Acceptable levels of toxicity. And so the acceptable level of toxicity is something that our tribe took on with the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality um, over a decade ago, because the amount of salmon that most people sort of, I guess, the average Oregonian ate would fit on one saltine cracker. The amount of salmon we consume, comparatively speaking, doesn't fit on the table, you know, the volume of salmon that we consume. So if you set the acceptable level of toxicity for how much salmon we consume, that's a very, very different number. And so if you think about how structures are organized around a diet that is not ours, <laughs> it's okay to poison Indians today. <laughs> I say this be with the expectation that most people don't understand what that means, but cancer and other forms of ill health that our people have not had a history with are visited upon our people in droves now because of acceptable levels of toxicity. And so here we are, Near the Hanford Reservation, <laughs> you know, upriver, downriver, we're here at Hanford. Underground plumes threaten the Columbia River. We talk about 
the salmon and its pivotal role in our culture and the struggle just to have access to an opportunity to fish when there are fish, which is a whole separate conversation. And we recognize that the threats are all still real and they're still coming from every direction. They're coming from the water. They're coming from the populations polluting the water. They're coming from the governmental decisions about the quality of the water, the air, the turbidity, the amount of flow that's there from the dams. It's layer upon layer upon layer upon layer on the Columbia River. And so it is the lifeblood of our people, that waterway. And when we talk about that river, it's a living being. It needs to be well. It needs to be whole. It needs to be healthy for us to be who we are. And there are many more species than salmon that we're concerned about, that we consume, that also have toxicity in them. And so as we look at sort of what decolonization might mean, it might mean not poisoning us with structural systemic ways of making practices acceptable that hurt us more than they hurt anyone else. Because we're still, from our perspective, the most vulnerable population in the United States. Because we're a subset of our once great numbers. We're diminished, not so much in our spiritual power, but in all other ways by what's happened over the past couple hundred years. So it's not how we think about things. It's how others control and use power to affect the lives of everyone as if all people eat the amount of salmon on a saltine. Um, these are incredibly powerful stories and, and uh, examples that you're sharing, and, and I'm so grateful for for that. Emily, I know you also had some that you wanted to share, so I wanted to invite you to do that. When we first brought up this discussion of monuments, um, I also talked about this aspect of, you know, what do we look up to? And I thought to this example of my daughters that were roller skating and uh, they were having a lot of fun. And in the background, I saw Kasumwai Mountain, which was renamed to a Yakima woman who had fought in our uh, Yakima War, 1855 to 1858. It's called the Yakima War. Uh, it obviously included battles and wars with other tribes. A lot of people were fighting to protect our, our women and our children at that time. And when I saw them roller skating, I took that moment to think about the prayers that were given 165 years ago. This war started as a result of violence against our Yakima women and children. Uh, and it was actually uh, Cayuse Jack, I believe, I'm theorized, that helped give us Yakima's word that the U.S. were sending troops up. I believe he was a double agent, even though he was uh, recorded as being uh, helping with the military. And I told my daughters this. So in the middle of them having this roller skating, I'm telling them this because not only did she fight in the Yakima War, she also protected our tribe from termination in the 1950s as testifying to what the treaty meant. And so every time I pass this mountain, every time I can see this mountain, I think of this testament to a, a young woman that fought for our tribe, uh, elder, 
that made Congress come to the Yakima Nation. She wasn't going to fly to D.C. She made them come to our, our homelands to hear her testimony. I think others have said she's a grandmother to all of us. So you can see her if you're going along Highway 97. Uh, this is the mountain that uh, she's at. I will tell you that from our perspective, we did a Native Place Names Atlas, uh, Ethnogeographic Place Names Atlas, for three reasons. One of which was to reinvigorate that knowledge in our community. And the more we know, the more we return to the ways of our ancestors, which was the intimate knowledge of places, whether it's fishing sites, digging sites, picking sites, um, trapping, grazing, any other um, ways that we lived on the land. As we reinvigorate those practices and reinvigorate the language, we believe the language, the land hears us speak our language. The land lights up when it hears our songs and when we conduct our ceremonies in gathering in those places. And so that's within inside the culture and outside the culture. I would say to you, it's difficult to get our neighbors to want to see it from our point of view. But one of the things that we've learned as we talk to people who are very proud of the fact that they're fifth generation farmers or fourth generation ranchers or sixth generation homestead owners, that if they have, if their family has been on the land that long and they're proud of it, imagine how we feel. Because our investment in these places, our bond to these places is inescapable, it's inextricable. And from my perspective, if people have an appreciation for and know the swells and the creeks and the springs of a landscape, they are beginning, they are beginning to understand our relationship to place. But it's a, it's a beginning. And so I invite people who um, think of themselves as transients to think about what it's like to be from a residential point of view that's anchored in thousands of years of taking care of the same neighborhood. The notion that someone could be from a place for a very, very, very long time is probably the most foreign notion to school kids that we have to cross that threshold to get understanding. And it's only a beginning. Just wanted to let the three of you share any final thoughts that you'd like to share before we adjourn? I think to these moments and times where uh, I was watching my Station 19 channel and I was catching up on my show and it talked about uncomfortable moments and the, taking the time to have these, you know, connection points. Um, we have the example of the uh, California, you know, when my child who's in uh, fifth grade was learning about that, it was, oh, and then there was this gold rush and da 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 da. No mention of the genocide of Native peoples, no mention of any of that. And was it uncomfortable? Did it take time to share that with that teacher and create that learning opportunity, a moment, and invoke some element of curiosity with her and tell her it's going to be important? We're not going to do this side by side learning that my parents did with me, where I had to learn side by side and then there was no accountability or bringing in of the teacher. You know, and distance learning has created those opportunities. 
And so I took that time to have that chat, to bring that to the forefront, because we're literally changing this shape and scope of education regarding what we look up to. What are the monuments and the things that we look up to? And how do we speak up when we see somebody is quoting a viewpoint that is very limited? I struggle um, because I know on the campus at Whitman that there are a lot of people who want to be change agents for representing this time and this moment in America or in the United States. And we've had a remarkable display of injustice and inequity. We've had the pandemic, as was talked about just a little while ago, and we've had a remarkable year of fires. And before that, we had really severe flooding. On top of that, there are economic changes afoot because of all of those other things. And there are consequences in the natural world from all of this as well. Some of them are good, but I think people who want to make impact now on behalf of people of color or who want to create change for the future need to be mindful that we are not unable to do it. It's not that we are not physically or intellectually capable of expressing our opinions and having opinions about many of these things, but they're not priorities for our people often. So as Emily so eloquently talked about, getting food on the table, our traditional foods on the table, is a huge undertaking. And it's a challenge for us to be who we are today in this modern world with the ancient teachings and the modern demands on our time. And so it's not that we don't care about many of the things that people want to talk about on campus. It's that it's not, of all the things that are important to me today, that is not the most important thing to me today. And it probably won't make the list tomorrow or next week. Statues that are offensive to someone else on my behalf, they're low on my list. I have many more important concerns, and many of those concerns have to do with the living beings in my family um, and have to do with taking care of each other, which is what our law requires of us. And that law is preeminent and supersedes all other laws in our land, the traditional law of our people. So I think when people want to get in an uproar or an outrage about something, be mindful that that's your privilege to do that. We may not have the comfort and the time and the leisure to do that. Dina, do you want to close us out? I can't top that. <laughs> Those words are brilliant. I, um, I'll just share this in our, um, in the Smuwich language, the way that we greet one another is Shumawish, um, Tipa Shumawish. It, it literally, Shumawish is our word for health and it's a verb and it's also a plural. So you, you can't do health singularly and it's an active, it's an active word. So it's something that you have to be doing and you have to be doing it as a community. Um, 
our traditional law is that we be taking care of one another so that we're healthy. We're doing, we're doing health together. And there's so much that needs to be done in order for us to just do health together as a community, let alone everyone else. But, but it is the way that we think, right? We're thinking about everyone else and the, and the earth right? and everything that informs what we do. So it's, it's just been, it's been a pleasure and an honor to sit here with you all. I'll, t- I'll take this into my healthy heart. That was Dina Dart, a museum curator who is coastal Chumash and Mestiza, descending from the indigenous peoples of California. We also heard from Bobby Connor, an enrolled member of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation and director of the Tumustalict Cultural Institute. And Emily Washines, an enrolled member of the Yakima Nation and board member for the Museum of Culture and the Environment. Our moderator was Matt Reynolds, professor of art history and visual cultural studies at Whitman College. To find out more about Confluence and the five completed sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. Remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence. That's you. Join us today at confluenceproject.org. Thanks for listening to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast. For more episodes, visit confluenceproject.org or wherever you get your podcasts.